turn, please, to the uh, sixth chapter of Acts, Acts 6. Acts chapters 6 and 7 are something of a transition in the uh, book of Acts. It's actually a pivot point between the story of the expansion of the church in Jerusalem, uh, Israel's capital city, and the westward expansion of that church on into first the provinces of Judea and Samaria, and then on to the extremities of the Roman Empire. And uh, Luke uses the story of, of Stephen as a transition from one phase of church growth to another. Uh, there are a number of references in the first five chapters of Acts to the, uh, the uh, enormous multi multiplication of numbers from a small beginning of 120 or so, the church rapidly expanded to about 3,000 after Pentecost. And then as we saw in chapter 4, they uh, grew to uh, 5,000 heads of households, 5,000 men, which would indicate something like 15 to 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem at that time. And uh, then there are, are other references to rapid growth. In fact, the, uh, the references tend to be indirect and give me the impression that there was no way to, to number the church accurately. In chapter 6, verse 1, we're told that the disciples increased in number so much so, so that it uh, necessitated a change in church order, as you saw last week. And then in verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. They still held their official uh, positions, their priestly offices, but they had now become believers. And Jerusalem was thronged with Christians. The church may have been numbered in the tens of thousands at this time. These uh, progress reports are spaced throughout the book of Acts in five-year intervals, so we can assume that the first five chapters of Acts trace through the first five years of church history, and the church grew from 120 to thousands and thousands of believers. But they were still located in Jerusalem. They were yet to plant any churches in any other place, at least any place that, that we know about. So now begins the second phase in the expansion of the church. The going gets tough. Persecution begins, primarily associated with the person of the Apostle Saul. The church is spread throughout the Roman Empire, and they plant churches wherever they, uh, they go. Now let's, uh, let's begin with verse 8 and Luke's description of Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. This was a synagogue of freedmen, Luke tells us, which would suggest these were exactly what the name implies, freed men, freed slaves, from North Africa, from Cyrenia and Alexandria, and from Asia, Cilicia and the province of Asia and what today is, is Turkey. Some have suggested that the Apostle Paul may have been a member of this uh, synagogue since he was from Tarsus, which was the capital of Cilicia. Uh, for myself, I, I rather doubt it because Paul was a Roman citizen and it was unlikely that he was ever a slave, but it is possible that he was a member of this group that debated Stephen. We're told in verse 10 that they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the, before the council. So another meeting of an apostle or an early member of the church before the Sanhedrin. 
And he put forward, and they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. There's a word that Luke uses a number of times in his description of Stephen. It's found first in verse 5 of chapter 6. We're told that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse uh, 8 of chapter 6, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing wonders and signs among the people. And then later in chapter 7, verse 55, we're told that he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. It's this word, full. It occurs three times in the story, and uh, it signifies the real significance of Stephen's life. He was a man filled and flooded with God himself. As we've seen in, in past weeks, there's a great deal of misunderstanding, I think, about the expression, the filling of the Spirit, but it's a term that's synonymous with a number of other references in, in the New Testament to the sort of relationship that we maintain with the Lord Jesus. We're told to abide in Christ or to walk in the Spirit, to depend, to trust, to count on Him, and, and I take it that the expression of the filling of the Spirit is simply another synonymous term. It signifies the control of the indwelling Spirit of Christ. When we depend upon Him, when we count on Him, when we rely on Him, we have His life available to us. And that's our significance as men and women. Stephen had hit upon what someone called the lost secret of humanity. Somewhere along the line, the whole human race has gone wrong. We believe that uh, the way to cope with life, the power that makes possible a successful, meaningful life is... Uh, comes from our education, or our background, or training, or personality, or our humor, or our physical appearance. But those are not the things that make us significant. That's not what permits us to, uh, to cope with life and to live with, with poise and power in the world. We were never intended to be anything apart from God. We're in, we were designed to be vessels, receptacles, to contain God. As Paul puts it, we have a treasure in earthen vessels. The, uh, by the term earthen vessel, he means our bodies, our, our clay bodies. That's the earthen vessel. Uh, Howard Hendricks uh, used to translate the phrase, we have this treasure in common peanut butter jars. That's what we are. There's not much significance to us except we are we're a vessel, a receptacle, a mason jar, if you please, to contain something of inestimable value, the life of Jesus Christ himself. And it's that indwelling presence that makes it possible for us to live life and like it. In the Old Testament, you have the story of this uh, amazing, tough old character, Caleb, who would not take no for an answer. When he was 80 years of age, he asked to, uh, as his portion of the land in Canaan, for the mountain of Hebron, where the Anakim, the giants, lived. He could have retired in his chalet along the uh, Mediterranean, but he went for the heights and the hard places. He wanted the toughest place in the land to conquer, and that was the mountain of Hebron. And we're told that, that when he went off to pursue his task, he literally filled himself up to the full with God. And most of our translations say he followed after God, but the line really reads, he filled himself to the full with God. That was the secret of his power. That was the secret of Stephen's power. And that's the secret of our, of our power. 
Now, I think what Luke is doing in this passage is describing for us the characteristics of a man or a woman who is filled and flooded with God. If, if you want to see how a person like that behaves and what sort of things they can do, then Stephen is the premier example. There are a number of observations that uh, I would make. One is that a spirit-filled man or woman is willing to do anything, the ordinary, the common, the unseen, the unknown, the unrecognized uh, things. Stephen's first task was to wait on a group of women within the church. Now, Stephen was, uh, his background was Greek. He was, he's described as a Hellenistic Jew. That is, ethnically, he was a Jew. He came from a Jewish background. But his culture was Greek. And the Greeks were great believers in human dignity. They wouldn't dirty their hands. They, they had no concept of servanthood. They were served. And yet Steve, who, uh, Stephen, who had this background, uh, this strong cultural background of Hellenistic thinking, was given a lowly place of service, what he could have considered a very, a very demeaning position. You know the situation. There were women in the church, perhaps single parents and others, and uh, someone needed to distribute food to them. Now, I don't know exactly what he did, and uh, I haven't found any commentators that, uh, that have, a, have a clue as to what his function was. I suppose he had to make up shopping lists and push his cart up and down the aisles of the local uh, Safeway and, and uh, buy food and, and carry it to, the, to homes and perhaps bake casseroles and pick up the Pyrex and Tupperware after it was all over, over with. And just a, a, a very menial sort of thing to do. And the interesting thing to me is that it wasn't women in the church who were commissioned to this task. It was a group of Greek men who took this responsibility. And yet Stephen did it without complaint. He did it with joy. And it just strikes me that one of the marks of a man or woman filled with the Spirit of God is that he or she is willing to do the common and the ordinary and the mundane without any fanfare, without any recognition, and to do it with joy. You know, most of life is just, uh, is just daily. It's picking up after people. It's uh, washing dishes and cleaning house, changing diapers, uh, wiping noses, toting and fetching, uh, running a jackhammer or a thumper or whatever your call in life is. And that's life. That's the way life is. And the mark of a man or woman who understands the significance of his, of his manhood or her womanhood, is that he's willing to do it with joy. As Paul puts it, to endure with joy. The same is true of so much of Christian service. Our Lord set the pace for us. It's, everyone wants a position where they're up front, where they can be recognized. But uh, some of the most significant things are done simply by washing the feet of the disciples. And that's the kind of man Stephen was. He was willing to take a lowly place and prove God out in that situation. A number of years ago, I ran across a, a poem that I think states the principle well. Father, where shall I work today? And my love flowed warm and free. And he pointed out a tiny spot and said, Tend that for me. I answered quickly, Oh, no, not that. Why, no one would ever see, no matter how well my work was done. Not that little place for me. And the word he spoke, it wasn't stern. He answered me tenderly. Ah, little one, search that heart of yours. Are you working for them? or for me. 
Nazareth was a little place, and so was Galilee. So um, when you remember that this week, Stephen proved out God in a lowly place of service, and, and, uh, and Stephen himself was proved out by God in that difficult set of circumstances. What God wants is simple obedience. As James points out, the real mark of a pious person, a person walking with God, is that they will visit orphans and widows and keep themselves unspotted from the world. It takes all the power of God to endure with joy. A number of years ago, I took a group of students from the San Francisco Bay Area down to Santa Cruz for what was called Cruise Week during the Easter week. Large numbers of students congregate on the beaches there in Santa Cruz and party. And uh, we had a coffee house that we set up on the beach from which we would send out teams to witness, and, and uh, we did a lot of evangelism in the coffee house itself. And when we arrived, we, we spent weeks training these students, and when we arrived for this, uh, for this event, we walked into the coffee house and discovered that nothing had been done to clean it up. It was just filthy, and especially the bathrooms. And so we had to get uh, mops and buckets and soap and water and, and clean up the restrooms. And one of the students said to me, he said, I, I, I was really frightened about going out on the beaches and talking to kids about, about Christ, and I knew that it would take all the power of God to do it, but I didn't realize that I would need all the power of God to clean dirty toilet seats. But you see, that's what it takes. And so much of life is simply doing the ordinary, the unnoticed, the unacclaimed thing and doing it with joy, doing out of a sense of that adequacy that we have because... Christ indwells us. That's the first thing that I note about Stephen. He was a man who was willing to do the, the ordinary and the insignificant and to do it with joy. Second thing that I notice about this man is that he was a real man. Uh, there was a, a sort of moral vigor about him. He, he believed the truth and he acted upon it no matter what it cost him. And it cost him a great deal. He was, as you know, the first martyr, the first Christian to give up his life uh, for the sake of the gospel. He was a man who, who did what he knew was right, even if it cost him his life. Now, we mustn't misunderstand the, uh, the phrase in verse 15 where they describe his face as the face of an angel. C.S. Lewis says, unfortunately, we get our ideas of what angels are like from medieval art, and that's not a reliable guide. Angels do not look like small babies, cherubs. If, as you read the Bible, you, you come to see that whenever someone saw an angel, they fell at their feet normally. They were devastated. And I think this is rev rather a, a reference to the firmness of, of, uh, of Stephen's face, the set of his jaw, the flame in his eye when he, uh, when he responded to his, to his opponents. When they gnashed their teeth against him, and when they plotted his death, he didn't lose his poise. He was a man. He was a man of integrity. And may I say that it takes God to make a man or to make a woman. Someone asked Old Halsby once why he became a Christian, and he said, I became a Christian in order to become a man. I have a good friend who's just starting a business, and he was telling me this past um, week that, that it's more and more common for someone to come to him and ask him to do something that is illegal. And he has to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. 
I'm sure there are other people who are willing to do that for you, but I, I can't do that. And every time he does, it costs him. But he believes that he has to have integrity. He has to do what he knows is right, regardless of, of the cost. There, there is, I think, an important principle embedded here. We cannot divide what we are from the impact that we have upon people. We may be able to fool others, but we will never have any serious spiritual impact upon anyone until we ourselves are willing to be true to the truth. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be performing perfectly. Who, who of us could qualify? Uh, what God sees is the intent of the heart, our hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That's what will be satisfied. But uh, if we're going to have any sort of moral impact upon the world, upon us, we must be true to the truth. I have a quotation from E.M. Bounds that uh, I've had on my lamp over my desk for a number of years, and it comes from a, a longer quotation from his book, Power Through Prayer. It reads like this, We are constantly on a stretch, if not on a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency for the gospel. This trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the man or sink the man in the plan or the organization. God's plan is to make much of the man. And he's speaking generically here, men and women. God's plan is to make much of the man, far more of him than anything else, because men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods but through men. He does not anoint plans but men. It is not great talents nor great learning that God needs, but men great in holiness, great in faith, great in love, great in fidelity, great for God. These men can mold a generation for God. The third thing I would, uh, that I see in this passage is that a spirit-filled man is also filled with the word. He's a man of, of wisdom. We're told in verse 10 that uh, in the debate with those from the synagogue of the freedmen, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, this is not a wisdom that comes from a seminary classroom or a university classroom. It has nothing to do with academics. It has to do with growth and grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a biblical theory of, of knowledge that says we grow as we're willing to obey what we know. As, Bible study, growth and understanding of Scripture and wisdom about life is not a matter of simply putting thoughts and facts into our heads. It's a matter of committing ourselves to Bible study so that we can understand Scripture and then responding obedience in obedience to the truth as we learn it. And that's what gives us wisdom. Uh, as far as we know, Stephen had no formal training, no formal theological training, and yet Scripture literally pours out of the man. He had no time to prepare for this debate. We'll see next week uh, what actually occurred and how he responded to uh, these freedmen. But uh, it was spontaneous. The Word flowed out of him because he was full of the Word. And it leads me to, to uh, an important, uh, what I think is a significant con conclusion, that if a man is full of the Spirit of God, he will be full of the Word. As Jesus put it, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, then you can ask what you will. We'll have an impact upon those around us as we fill ourselves with the Word. That means we need to set up a schedule to study the Scriptures and to give ourselves to earnest uh, study of the Word. That's where wisdom comes from.
Now, the fourth thing that I see in Stephen's life is found in, in chapter 7, verse 54. This section occurs after Stephen's message in chapter 7. And we read in verse 54, When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. That's an idiom for annoyance. And they began to gnash their teeth at him in frustration and, and in rage. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. That's an unexpectedly uh, beautiful description of so bru brutal a a death, just like, just as in the case of our Lord, he dismissed his spirit and he fell asleep. The vision that Stephen saw at the end of his life was the vision that sustained him throughout his life. As he was about to die, he saw the heavens open and he saw the glory of God and he saw the exalted Christ. And that's what motivated Stephen all through his life. He was willing to undergo any sacrifice in order to see God glorified and the Lord Jesus exalted. That was the theme of his life. He was willing to give up anything in order to accomplish that, that higher good. We're told something about the facts of his death in these verses, but it seems to me that far more significant is the fruit of it the fruit is twofold. In chapter 8, verse 1, Luke tells us that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And in it sounds, sounds grim, but we're told in verse 4 that those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. The first fruit of Stephen's death was the propagation of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. The church is like mercury. When you try to put a stop to it, it spreads everywhere. Uh, the blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the church. The church was tending at this point to cluster in Jerusalem. It was the persecution under Saul that drove them out of Jerusalem and throughout the Roman world. It would be difficult to assess the results of Stephen's death if you were a contemporary of his, but looking back we can see that, that this in God's plan was the way by which the gospel was spread throughout the world. In fact, we today in Boise are the recipients of Stephen's death because it was his death that precipitated this outbreak of persecution. It resulted in Christians going everywhere preaching the gospel. But for myself, a more significant fruit of Stephen's death was the salvation of Saul himself, this towering figure who dominates the rest of the book of Acts. Because I believe it was at this point that Saul realized the truth of the gospel. Later, when Paul was on his way to uh, Damascus with letters from the leaders in Jerusalem giving him authority to persecute 
uh, to uh, prosecute Christians there. He saw the Lord. The Lord literally arrested him in, uh, on his trip, and, and he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it not hard to kick against the goad? It's a reference to uh, an ox goad that was used to, to drive an animal on, and I, I think in this particular instance the goad was the gospel, the good news that was proclaimed by Stephen. Saul knew that it was true. It was like a sword penetrating his heart, pricked his conscience. He knew it was true. He couldn't get away from it. In fact, all of his attempts to persecute that church, I think, I think were simply uh, the result of, of his own conviction. He was inveighing against something that was, that was so, uh, so deep within his own heart, he, he couldn't get away from it. So Saul himself, who became the, uh, Saul, who became the greatest figure in church history, second only to the Lord himself, I think was a, was a product of Stephen's death. Now the question I have to ask myself, and I would ask it of you, is would, be, would we be willing to lay down our life if we knew it would produce a life like Saul's? Uh, no one in the church realized the effect of Stephen's life, and certainly Stephen himself did not know. We're, we're told that they, they offered up great lamentation when they buried him. And yet had they known, they would have buried him with joy but because it was because of his death that the Apostle Paul came to know Jesus Christ as, as Lord. Stephen was the fuel that inflamed the Apostle Paul. Jim Elliot wrote in his, in his diary while he was still in, at Wheaton College, Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be a flame. But flame is transient, often short-lived. Can you bear this short life, my soul? In me there dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consume me. Make me thy fuel, O flame of God. In other words, Jim Elliot realized that uh, though his, his life might, might uh, be a flame, a flame is short-lived and transient, he rather wanted to be a fuel to inflame others. And as you know, in, on January the 8th, 1947, Jim Elliot and four other men landed in their small plane on a little strip of beach that they called Palm Beach, and uh, shortly afterward were killed to a man. They were, they were slaughtered by the Aka Indians. Some months later, the families of those five men went back to the Akas to evangelize within that tribe, and now today there are thousands of Christians in Ecuador. And not only that, there are thousands of of people throughout the world whose lives have been set aflame by the fuel of Jim Elliot's life. Uh, for myself, it was, it was reading through Gates of Splendor while I was in the, in the service that caused me to get serious about my Christian life. And I, Chris Riddell told me just this past week the same was true of him. And I uh, just heard Chuck uh, Swindoll say on the air recently that it was that book that turned him around spiritually and motivated him to live out his life for God. So Jim, Jim Elliot's prayer was answered. He was a fuel that inflamed the lives of others. And my question is this. Can we pray that God will make us a fuel that will inflame others? That's a costly sort of prayer. It cost uh, Stephen his life. It cost uh, Jim Elliot his life. It may not cost our life. It may simply cost a great deal of time or our privacy are some special plans that we have for ourselves, for a great deal of energy. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. 
But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. That's where we have to begin. With a willingness to say, Lord, I, I want to set my own goals aside. I want to be used in whatever way you see fit to change the lives of others. I heard someone say not too long ago, if I had my life to live over again, I would live it to change the lives of others because you have not done anything until you've changed the lives of others. Now, that's a, a hard saying, and it's only made possible because we have an indwelling Lord who makes us adequate for anything. Let's stand. Father, we approach this uh, matter with a great deal of uncertainty because we know that uh, it can be a very costly thing. And as you've told us, we need to count the cost. But we also recognize that we have a source of infinite adequacy available to us, one who indwells us, one who's sufficient, and who makes us sufficient for all things. We also realize, Lord, that it's in losing our lives that we find them. We, we know that if we do try to live for ourselves, that we will ultimately lose ourselves. So we want our lives to count, and we want to have wholeness and satisfaction and fulfillment. And so we ask you to make us, as a body of believers, not only a, a flame for our day, but a fuel that, that inflames others. Use us to draw people to yourself and to enrich their lives and encourage them on in, in their walk with you. Make us willing to set aside our own self-interest and our tendency to feather our own mat nest and think in terms of our own needs and to be willing to give up ourselves for others. And we thank you again for your strength that makes it possible. In Jesus' name, amen.